look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popovich. How are you doing, buddy? I'm great. You? I like the pocket square. It looks very nice. No, it's actually the inside of the pocket. It's tricky. Is it really? Yeah. Look at you, yeah, fashionista. That's, good. that's a good design feature. Wow. I know. I can't lose it. <laughs> you can't lose it? <laughs> that's pretty good, eh? I never thought Somebody of that. Somebody's thinking about me. I'm Somebody. a target market. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> You'll never forget where your pocket nope, square is. It's always it's there. in your pocket. In my pocket. That's, that's awesome. I know. That was a good idea. Well done, buddy. Well, thanks for noticing. That's, no, it was nice. Yeah. Now that I know it's the inside of a pocket, I don't <laughs> like it anymore. But... <laughs> That was just That's somebody nice. smarter than us coming up with way a smarter, product. way smarter than us. Okay, That's so nice. speaking of smarter than us, uh, we've got a we've got a really great show today. We're going to have uh, Philip Peterson uh, back on the show. He's a regular recurring guest on a quarterly basis, uh, and he's going to help us understand the economics, like what's gone on uh, in in the past quarter. But more importantly, what can we expect going forward here? Yeah, lots of stuff to talk about, right? What's impeachment going to do? What the heck is going on with Brexit? We got the trade war issues. I mean, a lot of the same stuff that we've been talking about for a while. Correct. Uh, markets have been surprisingly strong. We'll get to that in in a minute. Um, but how you know how do you make sense of all this as an investor? Yeah, and and the thing that we're seeing and hearing more is about the risks coming down yep. uh, in the future. So we need to kind of understand what those could be like, and how do you position your portfolio to profit and protect during these yeah. times? So let's talk about markets because I you know it's interesting when I think about the conversation I've been having over the past week. Um, there's a disconnect between sort of what the equity markets have been doing, um, the uncertainty that still exists, yep. right? So they're still trading on comments, and people's gut feeling <laughs> about what their headlines mean to them, right? The yeah. fear. Uh, this isn't new to this week, but it's I, I've had lots of conversations with it because there's people going. I, I have um, uh, one uh, one gent I was talking to this week, and he's back at a place, Basil, where he's saying we need to add equities back to our portfolio. Three four months ago. We were de-risking the portfolio, right? He couldn't handle the volatility. Yeah. These are the kind of conversations that are coming back now, yeah. right? Because this fear of missing out is taking over again where equities are going up. Now, the question is, is it legit? What's driving it? Um, is this, are we trading into it? What, you know, what should you be doing? Now, part of that we'll talk about from a global economic perspective sure. in the next sure. couple of segments. But I think it sort of frames the, uh, you know, a lot of people are feeling this and they're uncertain of what to do because the emotional impact of what they see and read and hear may be different from the underlying fundamental uh, uh, effect of what's of what's taking place in the economy. Yeah, and we're, I'm finding that people that I've been talking to are now looking for some sort of strategy, we'll use that word very lightly, on market timing. Mm-hmm. Buy at this point, sell at that point. They look at a chart for the last 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, and they go, if you sold here and you bought here and you sold here, yep. look how much more money you would have made. Right. And I go, that's because you've got the lens of hindsight. Yeah, which is and are you accurate. saying that's, and, I, and I asked, I've asked many people to say, write down as if you were doing a computer program. Right. And you're going to tell the computer what to do every single step. Right. Buy at what point, sell at what point. And now go through periods in history where it didn't work. Right. And the response I get is, well, there's more computers now, so it's a lot easier. I understand it's a lot easier, but if it doesn't work, if your test fails, then what do you do, and how are you going to recover, and what's at what what's your your fail safe or your circuit breaker, right? right? right. And so people are looking for um, some sort of quick answer to get their results. It's kind of like those 
those um, quick diets and so forth. No, no, yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. whatever yeah. I'm on, it's yeah. a quick diet because I want to lose weight really quickly and not realize <laughs> that it never works. Right. It never works. Yeah, it's this, it's this peak to trough, but it's the peak to trough thing that, that people are going back to, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose there's some technical traders listening to us right now cursing our name and sending us hate mail by email at some I've, point. I've never heard one. Not one technician has come and said, if you follow this strategy, it is foolproof. Right. You'll always make money. You'll never lose. Don't worry about every And fundamentals don't matter, and the economy doesn't matter. All that, It's just the charts. Right. Yet to have one, and I have talked to thousands of them, well, let's and face not it. one has ever said, my system is the only system that's going to work every single time without fail, right. because they wouldn't be talking to me about that kind of they stuff. They wouldn't be talking to anybody. Anybody. Right? Yeah. You, you They'd have a proprietary you, algorithm that you'd never hear. And, and you'd never share it. That's and right. you'd never share it. Exactly. For nineteen ninety nine at your nearest online store, right? I think everybody would accept the fact that there isn't one strategy that works through every period of time, fail-safe, foolproof. That's called an arbitrage profit, and it doesn't exist. Exactly. Right? A risk-free profit doesn't exist. Okay. Um, I, I was fascinated again. Um, you know, the early trade on Friday, interesting again, positive comments come out from the White House. <laughs> yeah. Right? With no supporting detail. So, you know. Again. Um, yeah. Talking about, hey, we're, uh, what was the word um, that Cudlow used? We're down to the short strokes, I think was Correct. his phrase. You're using a little golfing analogy there. That's right. We're yeah. down to the short strokes. And okay, Futures markets, you know, are positive. And then uh, Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, comes out, supports, you know, that we're making significant progress. All of the stuff we've heard. But there's still some major stumbling blocks there. However, it does tell us that that the market wants to trade on that optimism, right? And we've seen equity markets Mm -hmm. for the last five or six weeks continue to make headway based on commentary. Uh, now, we have had a Fed that's been supportive of that, yep. right? We have had 35 global central banks to date provide stimulus to the system, so we're back at that, uh, at that issue. Um, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating time. Again, I go back to this headline issue, right? When people are going, hey, I haven't really seen any progress on anything, like real material progress. We hear these comments. Equity markets want to you know, move higher on that. Does that fundamentally change the risk-return relationship going forward? Um, it does, but it, it makes it actually a worse proposition, right? Because if the market is pricing in, if the market's pricing in a, a phase one trade deal, yep. and the phase one trade deal under the assumption of the Chinese involves rollbacks of tariffs, yes, and all we get is a freeze of tariffs, right? We're setting up for disappointment here. I'm not saying that's going to happen. What I am saying is the headline is a scary beast for me because it's, it's a, it's a one-line statement, Right, that it tries to encompass everything in that one line, but the nuances below that, the details, the fundamentals, as we call it, really uh, is what you got to try to keep your eye on the ball. Because yeah. if you get distracted from that, if you follow the bouncing ball off into the corner, <laughs> right, you can end up in a place that you didn't, you know, you just didn't intend to be. Yeah, and if you get on the wrong side of that, hmm, those can be dire consequences. This market is focusing on better than bad is good. Yeah, we're back to that. And if it's Better than bad, it must be good, so therefore, markets are going to move forward right. without pure fundamentals behind it, without any policy. You know, um, I remember the story of the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. How many times did he have to cry wolf before no one came out and helped him? How many times yeah. do we have to hear the trade is getting better, right. the situation is getting better, right. and then someone says, no, 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 no it's not, and right. now it's getting better. Right. And, the, and if we continue to move the markets on headlines, not on fundamentals, right. that's when people will get caught off guard. Right. And so we don't practice that. We don't practice just pushing on headlines. We don't practice on uh, on assumptions uh, that are based upon someone's commentary. The president, the Federal Reserve, 
commentary. Well, it's, spe- it's speculation, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it's pure you, you, sense. Yeah. It's speculation. Yeah, and we 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 look at a way to actually take a look at the economics, the actual fundamental right. numbers, and then make the decision. Right. Um, versus, well, I think this is going to happen, and and next twelve months, my friend, yeah. are going to be very exciting for us because we're going to get a whole bunch of phone calls. Uh, people saying, oh, this candidate in the federal election in the United yep. States is going to win, and this is how it's going to react the market. Or Trump's going to get reelected, and this is what's going to happen yep. the market. Like, we're going to hear speculation after speculation. We're going to see people will actually put their money towards some sort of bet of what's going to out- be the outcome. Right. We all got shocked when Trump got in, right. and we thought, hey, this is going to be a bit of an issue. Right. And those markets took off. Took off right away, yeah. And then we saw the markets fall 20% last quarter of uh, 2018 yeah. Quarter, yeah. When, when nothing changed. Right. Nothing happened. It was just commentary. Yeah. Yeah, it was actually U.S. Fed chairman commentary. It yeah. wasn't even you know White House commentary. Not even action, just right. commentary. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they scared the market. So be aware that this is gonna, the next 12 months is going to be fun. I think it's going to be very inso- exciting. Now, I want to be clear that we're not saying that you don't make some assumptions about what the outcome is going to be, but you also have to risk it, right? Because um, I remember very distinctly, and I've talked about this before, a call prior to the Trump election where Trump's getting elected and defaulting immediately to China on Treasury payments, and we're going, wow, under those assumptions, you know, you've got a complete breakdown of paper currency, of fiat currencies, right? What are we going to do about that? And when we got down to it, we had to put a risk probability on that. What's Correct. the probability it's going to happen? Because you don't know, yeah. right? Maybe maybe the White House is telling the truth time this time. Maybe they're not, Yeah. right? We know they're negotiating in public for sure, but you don't know what that outcome. So you've you got to factor it into your assumptions and you've got to have a, a reasonable uh, thesis and a probability around that thesis. Correct. And, and then humbly ask yourself, if you're wrong and it's worse than expected what happens, and if you're wrong and it's better than you expected, What's going to happen? You know, coming up after the break, Dave, we're going to be talking to uh, Philip Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's been—he's a recurring guest of ours. He gives us his forecast. He's with Manulife Investments. Um, what we're going to find out is: should you sell all your stocks now? Get get out of it because there's there's something happening out there. And let's see if what he thinks about that. And we're going to talk about these types of strategies and investment ideas on uh, Tuesday, November 19th, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seat. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400. Or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. So should we sell all of our stocks? Hide in cash because something's coming down the pike. We're going to find out right after the break. You're listening to 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Uh, Faisal, you know, we've talked at, at the outset a little bit about some of the reactions that people are having emotionally to the headlines and what do the economics tell us. And it's confusing for people. And we, uh, once a quarter, have an opportunity to talk to Philip Peterson. Philip is the chief investment strategist for Manulife Investments. And uh, his job is to take all this complex stuff and try to make it understandable and give people a sense of what's really happening under the surface, right? Not just what the headlines are that we read and see, yep. but what do the fundamentals uh, look like? So, uh, Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, my man. Let's uh, let's sort of start with the uh, the year to date. I'd love to give your um, to get your sort of refreshed um, thoughts on where you thought, how you thought 2019 was shaping up, and then you know fast forward 11 months, how it actually played out year to date, and um, and let's talk about some of the differences. 
Uh, I would say, you know, when you mentioned on the top that uh, what I try and do is make sense of what's going on this year has been a little bit more difficult than in prior years. And the reason for that being is we've got an interesting political environment going on right now with uh, or between the United States and China that uh, has resulted in tariffs and, and slower global growth. Well, let me start at the beginning of the year. If we recall uh, about a, a year ago, uh, the markets were in a correction and a pretty healthy correction that uh, concluded basically Christmas Eve and then on Boxing Day, you know, things started to go the other way. And between the low of the market in December to around the middle of April, we saw a full recovery. So it was a bit sharper and, and faster than what we would have anticipated. However, you know, we did figure that we would see uh, a recovery nonetheless. What I'm surprised of since then is that the markets continue to move up. And so we continue to hit new highs when the economic data and even the fundamental company data continues to be rather weak. Now, not so weak that we're suggesting we're headed towards a recession in the United States or globally, but weak enough that you know, we're surprised that the markets continue to, to again, march higher yeah. Uh, breakthrough to new highs um, without really any good reason other than the fact that there's hopes that we're going to see some type of trade deal between China and the United States. So I would say the first half of the year, you know, not too surprising. Um, certainly since uh, September, I would argue that the market has taken us by surprise as it has moved up um, on on really no change in the environment for the better, uh, but some things that we can point to that have actually gotten worse. And it's, it seems to be, you know, the adage of buy the rumor, sell the fact. Well, the, certainly the market is buying the rumor right now on the equity side. So what should it have done if we, if we were to turn the clock back to where you're like, okay, it's, it's not all that great right now. Um, and we shouldn't see the markets take off like they have, what should have it done? Should, should it have been flat? Should we have seen a contraction in the stock market? Like, what, what should have it happened? From where we were at the end of the summer, the market should have uh, pretty much stayed where they uh, stayed at that level, mm-hmm. right? And, and I don't necessarily think we should have seen a market uh, contract. I mean, we, you know, we're not looking at overvalued equity markets here. We are looking at fully valued equity markets that are moving up on negative earnings growth. And that's, that's the challenge that we have. It, earnings or profit growth year over year is let's call it flat it's very modestly negative but when we look ahead to some of the indicators that uh, that are predictive of forward earnings growth it suggests that earnings growth is going to continue to remain flat or negative for the next couple of quarters at least and markets moving up in that environment is what has us scratching our heads okay so let's go back to the earnings uh, piece there We're, we're seeing negative earnings growth which means companies are not making as much money on the profit side as they were in the past. So it's going in a negative direction. Walk us through really quickly, why is that important? Because I don't think people are paying attention to it or maybe they don't understand why that's significant when it comes to how how, uh, stocks are valued. Right, so the first thing is we have to distinguish between negative earnings growth and losses. So companies aren't losing money. Um, that's important. You know, often when we hear negative earnings growth, so, you know, that must mean that companies are losing money. It, it, that's not the case. But to what you said exactly, they're not making as much as they were a year ago. And it's only modest, right? And, and it's not every company. But on average, when we look at the U.S. stock market earnings, 
are down 1% from a year ago. And why that's important is that, you know, we, we tend to say, look, call me old fashioned. I like to make money in the stock market because the companies that I own are generating higher profits, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and it just makes sense. If a company makes more money, it should be worth more. Uh, if, if in general companies are making less money, well, they shouldn't be worth more. They should be worth perhaps a little bit less or, you know, valuation should stay where it is. Uh, and so this is what I think is being missed or, or is driving perhaps uh, the level of optimism on earnings growth for next year, I would argue, is too high. Currently, uh, the estimates for earnings growth for 2020 is just under 10%. So what the analysts are suggesting is that we're going to see profits rebound and rebound very strongly next year to the tune of about 10% over what profits were in 2019. challenge I have with that is that isn't supported by any of the data that we look to that has been indicative of forward earnings growth. And that's a very good point. So what what the analysts are making the assumption on is that U.S.-China trade deal all better now so that things are... Things are moving forward. Is that is that like why would they have that view when the rest of the data that we look at is not supporting it? That that's the million dollar question today. And the other thing we also have to consider is that even if we got a trade deal, uh, and so far you know the phase one of the trade deal doesn't necessarily um, suggest that we're going to see a rollback of all the tariffs. I mean, it's kind of a he said she said uh, thing here where. We hear on one hand, yes, you know, the tariffs will be rolled back. On the other hand, no, they won't. And so we're left wondering what's going to happen. Because if the tariffs that have been in place aren't rolled back, aren't removed, then the environment doesn't improve. Why would trade improve? And and therefore, why would earnings go up? Um, And then the other thing that we have to keep in mind is the slowdown that we've seen globally isn't just because of the tariffs. It started before that. And and just because we get a trade deal, does that mean it will fix all of the problems or some of the slowdown um, or, and what led to the slowdown earlier uh, in 2018? And, and that's that's what right now I'm not seeing evidence of. Yeah, I, you know, we talked about this earlier in the show, right? It's this notion of what's being priced in, mm-hmm. right? And can you can we quantify that? And like Philip, you and I were talking about. Hmm, you know, I'm not sure that a phase one deal necessarily contains all of the elements. You know, Trump's been boasting about the amount of agricultural purchases that they're going to make. Well, what if it comes in shy of that? Yep. Right? Um, if if it is just a freeze of future tariffs and not a rollback, as Philip said, mm-hmm. China wants rollbacks, right? So what if you don't get that? So we could, you could conceivably get a, a phase one deal. Yeah, but be, be disappointing. But be disappointing, yeah. right? And I think there's a there's a probability building towards uh, towards that. That's um, a, that's a good point. How about we go to commercial break? Come back, talk to Philip about how how is he positioned in the portfolio today, so he, so we can look forward. Um, I'm going to ask this question right now, and I want to say want I want the answer um, after the break. Okay, Philip, should we sell all of our stocks now because of everything slowing down? If this thing crashes, we better protect ourselves. 
or on the opposite, I'm hearing from a lot of people saying, hey, should we not put more money in the stock market right. and go heavy on that? We'll talk about those two extreme levels and what's the right thing for, for people who are transitioning to or living in retirement. And we'll be discussing how to have this five-pillar investment strategy approach, Dave. We're going to do that on Tuesday, November 19th, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel at the, in West Calgary. Now you need to reserve your seat, so give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, so if you're wondering whether or not you should sell everything and head for the hills and go hide, then stick around after the break. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Uh, we're joined, obviously, uh, by Philip Peterson. Philip is the Chief Investment Strategist of Manulife Investments. And we spent the last uh, segment really talking about 2019, how it shaped up, and how it was surprising. Yeah. Okay? Um, Philip, I want to start this segment with a look forward. Okay. And I'm going to I'm going to give you some context uh, to the investment uh, management committee meeting that Faisal and I and our team uh, just concluded on our quarterly reviews. But here's the bookends. Um, on the most pessimistic uh, uh, member on our, our investment management committee, uh, they see a 75 percent chance probability of a U.S. recession in 2020. On the most pes- or, sorry, optimistic side, okay, we have one of the members who says, this is just globally a mid-cycle slowdown, a mid-cycle correction, and that the, the stimulus, we've had 35 global uh, central banks providing stimulus to the system, that we're going to reaccelerate the, the economic growth, the global economic growth. That's a, those are pretty wide bookends. Where are we? I would say we're closer to the uh, mid-cycle slowdown, if I had to lean one way or the other. And the reason for that being is we go through a number of different indicators uh, that have been typical preconditions of a recession in the past. And I'm pleased to say that really none of them are flashing red right now. So it's very difficult in my mind to make the case that we are headed towards a recession. There's always a probability that something could pop up that we, we don't anticipate. But if we look at numerous uh, preconditions of a recession in the past, really none of them exist today. And in the more important ones you touched on there in terms of central bank easing, how are the credit markets? Right, Because if credit seizes up, you're absolutely headed towards a recession. Yep. We don't see that at all. In fact, you know, we would argue that the Fed didn't need to cut rates at all over yeah. the last uh, three sessions uh, because credit, if you look at a number of different indices uh, that measure credit in the United States, they are all pretty favorable. So the banks are okay, the banks are healthy. Uh, then you look at the consumer in the United States, um, and you know, we would argue globally, um, the consumer, but in, in the United States in particular, very healthy. So it's difficult to make the case that it would be a credit or consumer-led recession in the United States. Now, could we see a manufacturing recession, mm-hmm. which is a small subset of the U.S. economy, but important to the stock market? Yes. You know, we can argue that we can see that. But would that lead to an outright bear market and therefore a crash in the markets? Again, you know, markets aren't overvalued. We do see flat earnings growth over the coming 12-month time frame. It doesn't suggest that we would see anything deeper than a normal correction. Um, but over the course of the next 12 months, we don't think that that justifies, uh, to Faisal, your question before the break, justifies selling your equities outright into this environment. It does recognize the fact that we probably want to dial back our risk. If we think you're going to get a below average return out of equities, positive but below average over the course of the next 12 months, well, that comes with 
average or maybe slightly above average risk, it's not worth it. So dial equity exposure back, shift that to fixed income where the return profile we think over the next 12 months is going to be pretty similar and, and start to perhaps protect yourself a little bit to the downside. Okay, so let's let's start talking about how you position your portfolio today. Um, we have had many conversations uh, together about the positioning of the portfolio, how you've been taking it down from equities and so forth. Start off by saying to you, to our listeners and viewers, what's what's considered to be a balanced portfolio, so you have an idea of what what that looks like, and then what have you done? In the last two quarters, so September and let's go back to June, on what you've changed and why you made those changes in light of what was been discussed so far. Certainly. So let's start with the benchmark. The benchmark is a 60-40 portfolio. That's 60% equity, 40% fixed income. Okay. Uh, historically, this has provided investors with the, the best risk-adjusted return, meaning you know, you're getting paid per unit of risk. Um, now, what we've done over the course of, of the year, I'll say, is is reduce our overall equity weight. Uh, a little over a year ago, it stood at about 70%. Today, it's 50%. Um, so in June, uh, that was the last uh, time that we actually made a change in our model portfolio. We took our equity weight down from 60% to 50 We were kept it that way in September, uh, really didn't make any change in September, um, and so we're sitting at 50% equity, 50% fixed income. So underweight relative to a 60-40 benchmark by 10%. Uh, and so that just is suggesting that we think, look, the upside in fixed income and equities is going to be you know, similar over the course of the next 12 months. Um, and our downside should be less than what we would see out of a 60-40 portfolio. So the beautiful thing about investing, Dave, is we can go anywhere in the world. Right. Now, if you have 50% of your money in, in equities, Philip, walk me through the geographical locations of where you're allocating that money. Certainly. So our overweight would be to international, and that's a 20% of that 50 would be to international equities. This would include Europe. This would include Japan. This would include uh, developed markets in Asia. And the reason being is that if we think that we're going to see a recovery, so the risk to the upside is that we do get a trade deal. Who benefits most in a trade deal based on valuation and earnings growth? That would be the international markets. That would be Asia companies or, and, and countries tied to Asia. So who has greater exposure to China in particular? Germany, Europe, much more so than we would see in the United States, where the U.S. market, again, isn't expensive but as far as valuation is concerned, it is trading at a higher level than what we're seeing in other areas of the world, Europe, Japan in particular. Uh, and so we think that the international markets have more leverage to the upside and have already seen uh, a good, healthy part of the downside where profit margins have been compressed, earnings mm-hmm. have fallen by a greater degree than what we've seen in the United States. So that's why you know we do like international at 20%. And then the other 30 we actually split between Canada and the U.S. So we think that the return profile between Canada and the U.S. is fairly similar over the course of the next 12 months. Now, Philip, Uh, all that's going... Philip, Philip, I'm going to jump in there. All that's going on politically here in Alberta, no pipeline... You know, it's it's and you're in Toronto. We're in Calgary, a little bit different here. The sentiment here is completely different than in Toronto. Why so much money in Canada uh, when you can put more in the U.S. if that's the growth engine of the world so far? 
well, a growth engine of the world, but in, in a year that's coming where, you know, growth is going to be hard to come by, right? And so Canada um, looks similar to the United States from a valuation perspective or the, the opportunity um, in valuation, meaning Canada is, is uh, much cheaper than the U.S. Right. by about one standard deviation. So, you know, it, it's only this cheap or cheaper, you know, um, we're looking at 15% of the time. And so that, uh, there, now there are reasons why Canada is cheap. Energy policy is one of those reasons. But, you know, there are a number of companies uh, within the TSX, perhaps not the TSX itself, but within the TSX that are global in nature, that are very well positioned, um, diversified around the world, uh, that uh, can benefit if, if we start to see global growth move a little bit higher. Uh, and they're trading at significant dis- discounts to their U.S. or global peers, um, and at the same time are also paying attractive dividends. So that's why we would say, you know, we would put Canada uh, in terms of the return profile similar to that of the United States over the coming 12 months. But again, it's only 15% of the portfolio being each. So we're not certainly not overweight Canada. We don't have a disproportionate uh, weighting to Canada um, but uh, you know, let's look at the U.S. at 15%, where we were, say, a couple of years ago, that would have looked like 35%. So we think the opportunity set in the United States is is much more similar to what we see uh, in Canada and a little less than what we would see in the international markets. We have about a minute left. What are your rate of return expectations over the next 12 months in this kind of a portfolio, 50% equity, 50% fixed income? Uh, over the course of the next 12 months, my expectation would be somewhere in the in the low single-digit range, uh, call it somewhere between, say, 3 and 5%. And and you're saying that fixed income and equities, in your opinion, likely uh, you know doing about the same? Exactly. So a, a diversified fixed income portfolio that would include high yield, would include some emerging market debt. I would look at both um, in returning. You know, the base case would be in, in somewhere between that uh, 2 to 5%, uh, 3 to 5% range. Okay. That's a big change for people. We've been accustomed to 10% rates of return in the stock market plus, and now you're going to be looking at a portfolio potentially getting you to 3 to 5%. Uh, so be aware. This is a big change. If this, if this pans out the way that this base case looks, it's, it's going to surprise a lot of people and disappoint a lot of people because this year – was a good year. Mm -hmm. And so 2020 may not be uh, as high of a year in return as as it was. So just be aware of that. You know, Philip, this is great. We love having you on the show every time. I'm going to bring you back again for our next quarterly conversation. uh, And thank you for your feedback. Happy to do it, gentlemen. Thank you very much for the opportunity. All right, before we sign off very quickly, our upcoming seminar. Yeah, we're going to talk about the five pillars, this type of volatility, how to profit and protect on Tuesday, November 19th. 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seat. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. Are you messing up your kids by trying to help them? And what are the intended, unintended consequences? We're going to talk about that on the next segment. Stick around for that. You're on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Welcome back. You're here with Dave and Faisal on 770 CHQR and More Than Money. Um, okay, lots of economics talk and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense of that for sure. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, we often talk before we do the show about sort of recurring themes, things that we're talking about. And there's a few things that have come up over the past couple of weeks that seem to be um, uh, a, a recurring theme. And it's a notion of children, adult children, right? And it's a couple of different variances on this is, are you helping your children if you're doing everything for them? Or are you hurting them? Or are you hurting them? Yeah. And And tied to that, 
um, is is at the end the, the gift that you're going to leave behind for your children from a legacy perspective. We've yep. been talking about children yep. a lot yep. and the impact um, that that parents are having can have and the unintended consequences of some of the actions that they take or think about taking, right? Yeah. I mean, we're parents. We get it. We talk about this stuff, you and I, all the time about how we raise our girls and what you're doing. And, yep. you know, everybody's got a different approach. But there's um, there's some interesting there's some interesting things coming out. You had an interesting experience or conversation with a person who had an adult child 30-plus years old. Yeah, over, over the age of 30. Right. Um, and in this situation, the parent decided to do everything for the child so they can get a mortgage meaning meaning look for the house right have the have a few houses lined up and then his adult child right. went and saw those houses had the mortgage somewhat figured out which also included son can you give me your pay stubs can you give me all the information the mortgage broker needs so right. i can give it to the mortgage broker right. like really got involved here <laughs> right like day to day let's not so i'll tell you my first experience getting a mortgage mm-hmm. my hey dad i want to buy a home great How, you have any money no go borrow it now what do i do right call the bank and get a mortgage yeah i should do that yeah he goes let me know how, how it works out so my first experience that's it okay car car loan so dad i'm gonna buy a car great got any money a little bit. Okay. So you're going to go down to the bank. Okay. What do I do? This was his advice. Just remember you're the customer. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I did. I didn't turn out well. Like <laughs> <laughs> my first car loan, right? Yeah. I remember, I remember that, but I learned a lot from that. Yeah. Right. I learned a lot. And so this is what we're, you know, this part and parcel of, of this conversation uh, sort of flows into some conversations I've had about legacy planning. Yeah. Okay. And so the conversation is similar, a different stage of life, but it's similar in this respect that what is the gift I want to leave for the kids? Yes. Right. So when we're talking about the situation you're talking about, um, I don't know if we'd call it a gift, but are you doing your kid a favor as you're trying to raise an adult and deal with adult types of things like a mortgage by doing everything for them? Yeah. And that's, that is a gift though, Dave. No, I, I, I agree. That, in yeah. my, in my, how the how my, our client explained it to me was, if I can help them get a home, right. get them get a, into a mortgage, and make sure they don't pay too much in interest, right. they're going to be better off financially. So that's like a gift to them. Right. Interesting. Right. But if they have no experience, they didn't they didn't stumble. Like, then how do they move forward? Yep. Right. Yep. And this goes the same thing when it comes to your estate plan. We yep. call it the legacy bucket. Yep. People want to give money. It's a gift. And when and how? And you had a very interesting case recently. A number of them. A number of them. This is the recurring theme. So we're talking about. I'm I'm doing some legacy planning with um, with some clients and yep. their families, and we're talking about what to do with the kids. Okay. So there's going to be assets left over. The conversation is: Should I be gifting during my lifetime? Mm-hmm. And then the structure of the gift. You know, when we're both gone, kind of a thing. But the conversation was the same, virtually the same as what you're talking about, right? I'm concerned that if I leave a significant amount of money that these kids aren't, they're not good stewards of wealth yet. They don't understand the value of the money we're leaving behind, how hard it was to generate over 70 years of life that wealth, right? They receive this large bucket of money all at once. And how's it going to impact them? Yep. And there's a very wide range of, of, of conversation, even between spouses. Correct. Right? One, yeah, they're fine. Like that's, that's it. Yep. They can they can receive that money no problem. The other one's going. Well, hang on a second, like 
you know, so-and-so is, hasn't shown that they've been good with money their whole life, yeah. and they could end up spending it on like crazy stuff. Yeah. So how do you help your kids, right, um, during your life, at the end of it, when they're growing up? This is a big part of the family dynamic, and it certainly becomes an important piece of the overall planning, wealth planning strategy, yeah. right, for families as they're transitioning wealth. They're faced with that. How do you structure it? How do you give it? How do you make sure it doesn't influence them negatively? Yeah. Right? Uh, I had a, a unique conversation with a, um, uh, a couple that won a lottery. Mm-hmm. Okay? And this, this is an insight into receiving lumps of, big lumps of, of wealth at once, right? Yeah. Very difficult on their relationship. Right. Once they won that, everybody thinks, oh, I just won lots of money and things get better. Put, put a strain on their relationship. Right. Yeah. Never mind any impact to kids and family or extended family. They yeah. didn't have actual, they didn't have direct kids. Can I go back to that? Uh, there's there's families or couples that we deal with where the, the two partners in that couple have a different view of what their children or their yeah. the financial yeah. literacy of their children yeah. and the responsibility behind that money. A lot of that comes from how they were raised, yep. the individual parents. But you made a point where there was one that said, oh, but the kids are fine, and the other one saying, no, they're not. Because what I find very interesting is when we go through a legacy bucket with a client and we find out how they want to leave assets or a gift behind to their loved ones, their children, and so forth. And you, ask, we ask that question. Like, are you comfortable with them receiving a big chunk of mm-hmm. money All right ones. away? Yep. Uh, you know, and and how will they react to that? And when we get the, ooh, I'm kind of worried about that, it stops there usually. Mm-hmm. It's, okay, let me think about how I can how I can control from the grave <laughs> the money. Right. So let me give you payouts, for example, over 20 years right. or whatever. Right. Whatever they, because yeah, yeah. that's how they see they can control it so that the child doesn't spend it. It's funny, I've yet to hear a parent say, well, now I need to make sure my child, as part of that legacy, becomes financially literate, more importantly, educated and independent to make the decisions for themselves so that they can be proper stewards of that money in the future. Right. I am hearing, I am hearing more of that. So here's the good news. I should have shared that stuff with you. Um, I think there's a, there's a generation, generational issue here. So it's interesting having the conversation about, about wealth transition and legacy and wills and so on and so forth because it's, you know, you know, it's not fun. We're talking about when you guys, when they're gone, right? How taboo that topic was, let's call it two generations ago. Correct. To where we are today. Yeah. More and more families, I'm encouraged by this, more and more parents are actually having a conversation, an open conversation with their children about what's going to happen, what their wishes are. And part of that is the conversation, uh, you know, around, so it's not a formal literacy class, financial literacy class, but they are talking about how this will be used and what their wishes are and what they want to support and that gift to them. So that conversation is starting. Man, it is only at the very beginning. Though. Correct. It Correct. is. We're skimming the surface compared Correct. to what has to happen. So let's do a, a couple takeaways for people who've been listening to this. They're, they're, they have got money. They're, they're thinking of gifting to yeah. their children upon death or even while they're alive. Mm-hmm. What should they? What should they be doing? Okay, so let's talk about the gifting while alive. Good conversation this week. Um, uh, parents said we want to. I would really like to gift while alive, and we talked about the sum of money they were going to gift to each of their three kids. And I said, "What impact will that sum of money have on their life today?" And they both looked at each other and they said, "Well, none." Okay, so what what are you trying to accomplish with that gift? Yeah. So ask that question, yeah. right? Um, where that conversation went, Fizzle was down this notion of a. Um, uh, uh, of experience. 
So the money that they were thinking of gifting in their lifetime, which they determined ultimately wasn't going to make a material difference in any of their kids' lives, they could make a material difference if they spent that same money, say, on a holiday with the family and took the kids and the grandkids away and created the memories and the experiences, right? So that was kind of a cool twist to that conversation, right? So to, to answer your question, I think when you're thinking about the gift, think of it, first of all, in terms of a gift. That's the number one thing. People don't really understand that legacy planning is about a gift. If you're leaving wealth behind to the next generation, it is a gift to them. How would you like them to receive it? Nobody ever sits in front of us and says, you know what, I want the family to break down and be in a legal battle. (laughs) That's nobody's gift, right? So make sure it's structured properly. Make sure you're asking yourself the question, okay, what are you trying to accomplish with that gift? Yeah, yeah. Right? It doesn't have to be one generation. It could be multiple generations. Yeah. It can support charities, yeah. right? You can you can help your children become stewards of wealth by opening a, a charitable foundation, yes, right, and helping them understand social giving. Absolutely, right. So there's a ton of ways to go, but it's it's the conversation is often about the legal structure, not about the gift. Start at the gift. Yeah, great. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. You bet. Okay, let's uh, let's remind everybody because part that legacy bucket is one of the four buckets that we're going to be talking about at the upcoming seminar. Yeah, planning for the future is going to be the key topic. We're going to be discussing this on Tuesday, November 19th, 7 p.m. at the Four Points Sheraton Hotel in West Calgary. You need to reserve your seat. So give us a call, 966-8400. That's 966-8400, or you can register online at morethanmoneyradio.com. All right, well, thanks for tuning in and joining us for another edition of More Than Money on 770 CHQR. We look forward to chatting with you next week. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.